just realized I turned my I didn't turn my mic off. So thank you, Greg, for turning me off during the singing. That would not have been unpleasant. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Joel, chapter two, the book of uh, Joel, chapter two. As you turn there, I want to tell you about an event that happened in. Uh, it happened at least in Talladega County that I know of, and I'm sure it happened across the South, and I'm sure it maybe even around here. And I don't remember exactly, exactly when it was. I was probably in middle school. It was, uh, it might have been 2010 or earlier. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, we experienced what felt like a real-life plague. What happens every 14 or 17 years, depending on the species of this creature, a bug called the cicada arises from the ground and begins its cycle of mating and, and hatching eggs. And during this time, they swarm everywhere. Did y'all have this maybe several years ago? Have, have y'all had this before around here? If you don't know what I'm talking about, then it wasn't as bad as what we had because we experienced what felt like a serious plague. Uh, they swarm everywhere. And for this short amount of time, it changed the way that we lived our life. For maybe a couple weeks or a month, it seemed like, you had to run from your house to your car to avoid getting hit in the head by a cicada, which is a big, hard-shelled creature. I mean, terrible, terrible bug. And if, and if you know, if you were to know my mom, you would know that she cannot stand things flying around her head. Anything, birds, bugs, insects. And so she especially hated this time. And driving down the road, you're going down the road, and you just constantly hear the dinging of, of these bugs hitting your windshield. Not like a, a soft bug that you hit you know, at night. These were hard shell bugs hitting your windshield and your car, just dinging what felt like your car. And of course, it wasn't so thick as a swarm to cause darkness like we're going to see in this passage. But it, you, certainly, you certainly didn't want to be outside. And my memory of this, I'm aware, may very well be over-exaggerated. But I do specifically remember asking my parents, is this what a locust is? Is this what a locust is? Because it felt like something that I had read in the Bible. And in Joel chapter 2 today, we're going to pick back up with his explanation of the events that are taking place in Israel, part of which is a locust infestation. And in chapter 1, verse 15, he says this, Alas for the day, for the day the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. And then he says again in our passage that we're going to read this morning, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. And so in spite of what's happening, in spite of this, these locusts and other things that are going on, it, this day is getting nearer, it is coming, it is imminent for the people of Israel. And Joel's prophecy to the people, and what we're going to read in chapter 2, serves as a warning of the coming judgment of the Lord. So let's read Joel chapter 1. We're going to read through verses 17. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them, through the years of all generations. Fire devours, devours before them. And behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. 
As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Let's pray. Dear God, we admit this morning that we need your help as we uh, read through your word and study through your word this morning, dear God. We pray that you would make it clear to us, dear God, that you would uh, impress it on our hearts, that you would draw us away from sin and into a closer and uh, more intimate relationship with you, dear God, that we would uh, walk closely with you, uh, dear God, and that you would uh, just continue to draw us and our church nearer to you, that we might be uh, a light to the people around us, dear God, that we would um, be as Israel and be a nation that is distinct and draw people to yourself, dear God. I ask in that prayer in your gracious and holy name. Amen. So the major theme that we're going to see running throughout this book is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. For Joel, this is a day to be feared. He says it is a day of darkness, of, of blackness, um, gloom. And we see uh, that Joel is going to teach us quite a, a bit about this day here in this passage and also in the rest of this book. But here in particular, we're going to see three truths from the day of the Lord, from Joel, about the day of the Lord. The first truth that we're going to see is that there are many days of the Lord. There are many days of the Lord. One commentator defined the day of the Lord as any day that God steps into history to do a special work, whether of judgment or deliverance. And so in this prophecy, especially in this book, he's going to deal with at least three different days that, that meet this criteria and that meet what we would call a day of the Lord. So, so first, as we read in chapter 1, there is this current locust infestation. 
And we read about that in chapter 1. And then chapter 2, it continues to talk about the locust, but it seems that there is something else, what is called an army of the Lord. So there's, a, there's locust, and there's an army, and then we're going to see later in chapter 3 that there is a third day of the Lord that is a bigger and greater day of the Lord in which all the nations will be judged. So we'll get more to that one later, but it's certainly true that some of the things that he's going to say about these first two days of the Lord will apply to that greater and be alluding to that greater day as well. You see, the timing in chapter 2 is particularly, that's embarrassing that the preacher's phone dings. <laughs> I normally leave that in the pew, but anyways. You see, the timing in Joel chapter 2 is particularly uh, vague, and I think that's purposefully so. It's vague in a way that we don't know exactly when he's talking about. Uh, on the one hand, he's talking about, he says, a day of the Lord is coming, which sounds like something that is coming in the future. It may be near or close by, but not yet happened. But he also describes the events in chapter 2 as something that sounds very, very real and, and, and present. Listen to how closely he describes all the things in the first part of chapter 2. We'll hit a couple of them. Verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Verse 3 says, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. Verse 7, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. In verse 9, they leap upon the city, they run upon the walls. All that sounds very real and close and, and present. It sounds as if Joel is watching this happen. So what's happening? Is, is Joel referring to a present attack of locusts, or is he talking about something worse and more dangerous? Is he speaking literally about their current situation, or is he speaking metaphorically about a future event? The answer seems to be both. What Joel is doing here is he's looking at the present destruction of the locust, the present infestation of the locust, and he is using that to point to something greater that is coming. He is using this picture of, of locusts devouring the land and saying, eventually there is a greater army who is coming in the future. So it is both a present uh, calamity, a present locust infestation, and also a future army that, that Joel was warning about. I, I think this is apparent. Notice in verse 2 how he describes, again, he says, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through, all the, through the years of all generations. So as serious as an infestation of locusts can be, to say that their like will never, ever again be, and that has never been before, seems to be unrealistic if he's only talking about locusts. But if he's talking about something greater, about an army, then that might make sense. And notice how much more serious what we read in chapter 2 is than what it was in chapter 1. In chapter 1, the, the loss that the locusts brought was primarily to land, primarily to agriculture and to trees. But in chapter 2, there is a shift. When this day of the Lord comes, we read in verse 3, that it comes like a fire and nothing escapes them. Not just the land, not just the agriculture, but nothing escapes them. In chapter 2, the army doesn't just attack the land, it attacks the houses. It climbs through windows like thieves. It says in verse 6, Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. 
So this is not just an attack of the agriculture of the land, of the, uh, of the farms and the trees. It is an attack against the people of Israel. So without downplaying the seriousness of their current situation, Joel points to a greater day of the Lord. A greater day of the Lord in which it won't be locusts that look like an army. It will be an army that look like locusts that are so destructive, so fierce, and so invasive that it will be like a swarm of locusts. And it's of that day that Joel says in verse 11, For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Joel says, without the intervening hand of God, we will not survive this day. It's impossible. He doubts that anyone can survive it. And because of the nearness of this day, Joel calls the beginning of this chapter for a trumpet to be sounded, to warn the people. So in Joel's prophecy here and in the rest of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, we see there are many days of the Lord. You can read through the New Testament, the Old Testament, you're going to hear a lot about this day of the Lord. There are lesser days of the Lord and there are greater days of the Lord and eventually there is going to be the day of the Lord, which is the final day of the Lord. And like I said, we will hear more about that in the coming passages, but what we see is that the lesser is used to illustrate and to warn about the greater, to prepare people for the greater. And this is not an unfamiliar pattern in the, in the Bible or in the Old Testament especially. Uh, likewise, when we see uh, that David, for example, was a picture of Christ. He was an anointed one, but not the anointed one. So David, for example, is a savior to his people, but he's not the savior. There is a greater savior to come. Also in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So there is a capital A Antichrist that is coming, but there are many Antichrists that have come and are coming. So the lesser is used to illustrate and to warn and prepare about the greater. So this pattern is a pattern that we see and is used all throughout Scripture in which the presence of the lesser anticipates the coming of the greater. So for Joel, the day of the Lord is a present thing. He is dealing with an infestation of locusts that is an a judgment of God against the people of Israel. But the day of the Lord is also something that is coming in the immediate future through this army, and there is a final day of the Lord that is coming one day. To recognize this, that there are many days of the Lord, is important for us as we read this passage because it, it, it helps us apply this text to our own lives because if Joel were only talking about a singular event, if Joel was saying this is a one-time thing that happened way back when, then we would read this and we'd say, that's a neat story about how God worked in the lives of Israel. But because there are many days of the Lord, and because there is a greater day of the Lord that is coming, then we, like Israel, need to hear this warning. We need to hear these words as if they are being spoken directly to us because there is a day of the Lord that is coming, and it is near. So there is a warning for us, and we are wise to hear what Joel has to say about the day of the Lord and how we ought to respond to it. So the first truth that we see in Joel is that there are many days of the Lord. The second truth that I want us to see is that the day of the Lord is God's judgment against sin. The day of the Lord is God's judgment against sin. That may sound obvious. You may be thinking, well, duh, it's the day of the Lord. So, yes, it's, it's his judgment. 
But I want us to consider how that might have seemed to Israel. Think of Israel as God's people who God has always been with, who God has always used. And then hear verse 11. Look there with me. The Lord, Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. You've got to think that as they're listening along to, the, to Joel's prophecy, that they already know what's, what's kind of going on. They probably realize this is bad. We need to turn from our sin. And Joel's going to tell us that we need to do that. Joel's going to tell us that we need to lament, that we need to turn and repent and turn towards God. And he's the one who's going to save us. But I have to imagine that when they heard that this is the Lord's army that's attacking them, that the locusts are being swarmed up by God himself, that had to come as a surprise. The, lo the locusts and the army are, as verse 11 says, the ones who execute his word. So while they, the locusts and the army are the things that's going to bring the destruction, they do so at the command of God. They do so at the command of God. And as God's people, they had to be in shock because who? They should have been God's army. They should have been the one who were judging the world or who were judging the other nations. But instead, God uses the nations and uses the world to judge them, to bring desolation to them. A foreign army or wild locusts are going to be the weapons that God is going to yield or is yielding against his people. And because God is this commander-in-chief, Joel says this is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And he says, who can endure it? Who can survive this judgment? But in a really big way, that is good news for Israel. It is good news that it is from the direct hand of God that this judgment comes. Because if it is from the hand of God, if, if the locusts are working at God's hand and if, if the armies are going to be under his command, then it means that God is the one who can relent. It means that God is the one who can call off the attack, who can stop the locusts. Because if these locusts were simply an act of nature, then, then what hope would Israel have? If it was completely out of God's hand, if God was completely out of control, then what hope would they have of God to stop it? And if the armies attacking Israel were, were purely acts of political terror or dominion, then what force could stop them from marching against Israel? But because it's at the hand of God that these things are happening, then he can relent over that same destruction and he can restore Israel. Now hear me, it is a difficult endeavor to try and understand the acts of evil in this world in light of God's providence and his sovereignty. Uh, there's a movie called, uh, I'm sure you've heard of it, uh, Batman vs. Superman. And there's a quote in there that's always really has stuck out to me. And uh, Lex Luthor talking to Superman, who is a god in this realm, you know. Uh, he says, I figured out, this is Lex Luthor talking, I figured out way back, if God is all-powerful, he cannot be all-good. And if he is all-good, then he cannot be all-powerful. He said he was struggling with something that his father had done to him when he was a kid. And he said, if there really is a God who is all-powerful, then he could have stopped it, but he didn't. He said, if there really is a God who is all-good, then he wanted to stop it, but he couldn't. But Joel, in light of the calamities that's happening, he doesn't question either the goodness or the power of God. Instead, he relies on them. He leans on them. Look at verse 13. He says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious 
and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So not only is God good, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, but he is powerful because he is able to relent over disaster. He is able to stop what has happened. So for Joel, this isn't a problem. Joel doesn't question the goodness or power of God. Instead, he leans on them. He calls the people of Israel to turn back to God because of the goodness and the power of God. See, Joel doesn't try to figure out the intricacies of God's working through the locusts or foreign armies. Rather, he focuses on the perfect and consistent character of God. And on that basis, he calls people to repent. If God is the one in charge, then he is the only one that can save Israel. He is the one from whom they need saving, and he is the only one who can save them. So this brings us to our third truth about the day of the Lord. And that is that the day of the Lord is a call to repentance. The day of the Lord is a call to repentance. So because there are many day of the Lords, because there is a final day of the Lord, the way this works, the way God is calling people to repentance is working in two different ways. It's working both retrospectively and it's working proactively through these day of the Lord to bring people back to himself. So what I mean by that is on the one hand, there is this current locust infestation. There's this current thing that is happening that, that is a, God's judgment against Israel's sin. They've already committed the sin. This consequence has come. And because of that thing that's happening, Joel says, turn back to God. This thing is here. So now you, you have seen your sin. Now turn back to God. Now on the other hand, God works proactively through the day of the Lord because there is a day of the Lord that Joel warns that is coming. And so because this day is coming, turn from your sin. Return to God. Repent. It works both ways for the thing that is already coming, for the thing that is going to come. Joel says, repent and return to God. So the goal then of every single day of the Lord is repentance. The goal is repentance, that people would turn from their sin. See, we are currently situated in a time in history where we know that there is at least one more day of the Lord. We know there is a day in which Jesus will return and God will judge all people on whether or not they have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus. So we don't know if there are going to be any other lesser days of the Lord between now and then, but we know there is this one more day that is coming. And it will be the day of the Lord and it will be the last. And so like the Israelites, we have this chance looking forward to see what is coming, and in light of that coming, we can repent and turn towards God for this day of the Lord. So now we see this shift. The, the, the warning has been given. The day of the Lord is, is, is coming. But look at what we read in verse 12 and 13. He calls people to return, but he calls them to return in a very specific way. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So, how are we to come to God? How is Israel to return to God after or in light of the day of the Lord? He says, with your hearts. Return to me with your hearts. And he says, to rend your hearts 
and not your garment. So that's to say that repentance has to be genuine. It has to be internal. It has to be a real transformation of the heart, not an external act. You see, a way that an Israelite would express grief or mourning or lament or repentance might be to rend their garments. That is to literally tear their clothes into two pieces, to tear them in half. That was an external sign of what their hearts were supposed to be feeling. But God says, I don't just want the external expression of your, of your sin and of your repentance. I want your heart to be broken over sin. He wants us to hate sin and to come to him with broken hearts so that he then can fix them and restore them. You see, through the law, God gave Israel lots of things to do when they had sinned. Things like burnt offerings, uh, rend garments, wear sackcloth, repent, uh, fast. All these external acts were intended to reflect an inward repentance. But it seems that for Israel, we see this a little bit in Hosea, we see it here uh, in Joel, that their relationship with God had become almost purely external. It had become only these little things uh, only these external things that were supposed to show what their heart was doing, it had become also almost like a transactional relationship with God in which they would do these things, they would be forgiven, they could move on. So, but if they are going to truly return to Him, God says, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be with your hearts. It must be genuine. So how often do we too try to come to God in this transactional way? How often do we come before God petitioning Him uh, or saying, you know, I'll do this if you do that? How often do we do that? How often do we come to Him with torn clothes but not torn hearts? So our God is a personal God. As you read here from Joel, He is abounding in steadfast love. He's overflowing with it. And because He is loving and personal, He doesn't just want us to be subject to Him. He doesn't only want us to appear as though we love Him. He doesn't just only want us to follow these, these rules. If that were the case, He would have just made a species of robots that would perfectly follow him, every, everything that he said. But God wants us to desire him. He wants us to be in a relationship with him. He wants us to know him and to love him and to follow him, not out of fear, not out of obligation, but out of a heart for him, out of a love for him. Because of that, our coming to him cannot be mechanical. It cannot be an external thing that we do. Rather, it must be coming to him with our hearts, our lives being shaped by Him, and our lives uh, being based on a heart-to-heart relationship with God. So God wants His people to return with their hearts. That's how He wants this repentance to work. He wants us to come with, their heart, with our hearts. But also, He wants His people to do this together. Read verses 15 and 16 with me again. He says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, Call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. So he calls an assembly. He says, gather the people, consecrate the congregation. He could not be more clear that this is something that is supposed to be widespread and something that is supposed to be done together. God is not only after individual hearts, but he wants a corporate return to the Lord. He makes sure that no one thinks they are exempt. Nursing infants, you're coming too. Now, of course, we know nursing infants can't fast or can't, can't you know, necessarily repent from their sins. But that's just to show just how deep sin had affected the nation of Israel. All people are coming to this fast. All people are coming to this, this consecration. He says, uh, 
let the bridegroom leave his chamber and the bride her chamber. You're on your honeymoon? Don't matter. Come home. We're doing this. We're having a, re a repentance right here, right now. We're consecrating all people. The newlyweds would have had an had a, had a exemption from their responsibilities for a year after being married. And Ashley only got two weeks. But other newlyweds would have had a whole year uh, to, to be a, away from their responsibilities. But what we see, though, is that uh, God is calling all people to be consecrated to himself. doesn't matter who or what you're doing. All people are to come and to be a part of this repentance. Joel is saying, and to consecrate something means to make it holy, to make something sacred. And so Joel is saying, make this church, make this congregation holy and sacred again. Make it a people who look distinct. So the people of Israel are always supposed to be a distinct people, to look different than the pagan nations. He's saying to Israel, you need to be consecrated again. You need to be sanctified again. See, God wants individuals. He wants their hearts, but he wants them to do it together. He wants them to come together as his people. I think that's the purpose of the trumpet, right? That's why he calls the trumpet is that all people will hear and that all people will gather together. I think that in part is where pastors and where church leaders and deacons and elders come into play, to be the trumpet blowers, to call God's people to turn in faith to him. See, unlike Israel, no one today has the ability to blow a trumpet and the entire church of the entire world listen. No one has that ability today. Instead, we have smaller congregations like, like us here all across the world that are called to live faithfully. And so I think that's where pastors like Matt and I come into place is that through teaching of the word and through example of life to lead our church to holiness, to, to blow the trumpet and to call our church to repentance and to call our church to growth uh, and to a personal heart-to-heart -heart relationship with God so that then we as the uh, represent, representation of the big picture church, of the entire world church, then we represent that to our community. We represent Christ to our community, and we then stand out as a consecrated people. And in light of the Great Commission, that, that we as a church and as individuals, and when we return to God, as we come to Him, as we long for this relationship with Him, we bring other people with us. We bring the community with us and the world with us to a relationship with Him. Notice then in verse 13 and 14, what God's response to repentance is. He says, And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Verse 14, Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So because God is gracious and merciful and abounding in love, he relents over disaster. And while Joel proposes this as a question in verse 14 when he says, who knows whether or not the Lord will relent, he presents the answer from God later in this very chapter. In verse 18, he says, and the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And he goes on to describe the many blessings that God will give to Israel. We'll learn more about these blessings and God's response next week. But for now, remember that the day of the Lord is God's judgment for sin, but he does it out of abounding love for his people, that we might turn to him and that we would turn away from the sin that leads to death. So in each and every one of the day of the Lord's, God remains consistent. He always responds to sin with judgment, and he always responds to repentance with grace. Because of this, 
Those who are in Christ have an ultimate hope in Christ as our deliverance. He bore the judgment that we deserve at the cross and gave us his peace and righteousness in return. Let me close by reading 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. You can hear Peter talks about the day of the Lord in a little bit different light than Joel. He says, Since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So in Christ, we don't dread the coming of the Lord. We hasten it. We long for it because it is then that all things will be made new and we will live in an earth and the heavens in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this time this morning that we have had to, to hear your word. Dear God, to, to study the day of the Lord. Dear God, I pray that in light of the days of the Lord of the past, dear God, that we can read about, that maybe we've even experienced, dear God, in light of those things that you would call us to yourself and, and show us uh, how to turn towards you, dear God, that we would do so with all of our hearts and not just as an external uh, return, dear God, but as an internal heart-to-heart relationship with you. And then in light of the day of the Lord to come, dear God, we know uh, there is a day in which you're coming again to judge all people, dear God, we ask then that you would prepare our hearts for that, dear God, that you would allow us to, in light of that, return and repent, dear God, that we would see uh, that and see the grace that you have given us through your son Jesus, dear God, and that we would turn to relationship with you through him. All these things are praying in your gracious and holy name. Amen.